What a wonderful morning of worship that we've had. I pray that we've had so far. It doesn't stop with that. We have the opportunity today to spend some some time to get more time together. But I pray this morning that you have been that you are encouraged by the Lord. I want you to know that that here at Grace Bible Church, uh, we may be a bit different from other churches you may attend. We don't. Here at Grace Bible Church, we don't seek to be flashy, uh, we seek to be faithful. We don't strive to be eloquent in our presentation, we strive to make clear the truth of God's Word. We don't measure progress by total attendance, by excitement, or even the number of folks who walk down the aisle. We don't measure it that way, we measure progress by faithfulness. We measure progress by whether folks are abiding in Christ. We measure progress by whether our people are growing in their relationship and their walk with Christ. The Apostle Paul captures this thought in Colossians 1.28. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all, all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus proclaimed that everyone who hears his words and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. In contrast, he warns that everyone who hears his words and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Friends at Grace Bible Church, we want you to build your life on Christ's word. That's our goal. For this reason, we have committed ourselves to four ministry pillars. I, here at GBC, we're committed to the exaltation of God. We do that with our lives. We do that as we sing and worship together. We do that as we hear His Word preached. Speaking of that, we're committed to the exposition of the Scriptures. We preach the Word of God verse by verse to understand so that we may act on the truth, so that we may actually do what He says. And we are committed to equipping the saints. As I said earlier, we want to present every person complete in Christ. And we are committed to the evangelism of the lost. We hope and pray that our faith here at Grace Bible Church will sound forth from this place throughout this city, throughout to the ends of the earth, so that many will come to know Christ through this ministry. Now as we get started this morning, I want to focus just for one quick moment on the exposition of the scriptures and equipping the saints. Here at Grace Bible Church, we take a long-term view of ministry. We recognize that many won't like our style of exp expository preaching. Take, for, take this morning, for instance, I plan to teach a history and biblical theology lesson so that you can better understand the background behind the passage that we're studying. We believe that understanding the history is a necessary step to interpreting and explaining the text. You see, we want to demonstrate how to interpret the Scripture so that you can be equipped to do this yourself. If your view, let me say this, if your view is that every sermon should be a home run, you're bound to be disappointed, especially by me. I think baseball provides, and I, I say this for the Kemp's because they love baseball, I know that. Um, I think the Twins, right? I'm sorry. I think baseball provides a good analogy for ministry. Flashy ministry may attract the crowds, but it's generally a mile wide and an inch deep. Everyone loves home runs, right? Everybody loves the, the, the you know, big ball, if you will. 
But if you take the long view of ministry, you understand that taking walks, hitting singles, and playing sound defense wins, wins a lot of ballgames. We believe that a firm commitment to our ministry pillars will yield the type of ministry that is pleasing to our Lord. With that, let's see if we can hit a single this morning or take a walk as we return to our study in Matthew. So let me pray, and then we're going to return to Matthew 2 as we return to our study that we've called the King and His Glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Father, I pray that we would settle our hearts. I know that it's been a busy morning for many of us. We can be distracted by the world. <clears throat> I pray, Lord, that even now that we would settle our focus on you. We would, Lord, that we would uh, meditate on your truths. Father, that we would look to you for, every, for in your hand we find every good thing. Be with us this morning as we preach your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read the sermon text for this morning's Matthew 2. I think I'm going to read down to verse 12. <coughs> really, this whole section runs all the way to 23, but we're just going to focus on the first 12 verses this morning. Matthew writes, <coughs> this is the Word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? <coughs> For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the, of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be, to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what, the, what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined how, or from them how or the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I, may, I too may come and worship him. <coughs> now after hearing the king, they went on their way, or went their way, and behold, the star which had, they had seen in the east was going before them, until it came and, and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child would marry his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Now before we dive into... Matthew chapter 2, we need to briefly review Matthew 1. 
The Gospel of Matthew was the first gospel written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It was written by Matthew to make a powerful case that Jesus is the Christ, Israel's Messiah, the true king. It was penned, we learned, by a profaned character named Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was a profaned character because of his choice of occupation, but as it turns out, He was the perfect choice to write a powerful case that Jesus is the true king. The setting was in Israel during the days of the Roman occupation. Now this created a peculiar culture that we need to make an effort to understand. Now for the next two weeks we'll look further into this culture to help us interpret Matthew 2. But in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17, Matthew carefully gave Jesus' genealogy through Joseph And in doing so, he established Jesus' legal right to the throne of David. In those verses, the first 17 verses, we learned that Jesus' genealogy is dotted with several pictures of God's grace. We saw this in the lives of Abraham. We saw it in the life of David, of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, Bathsheba, and we see it throughout his genealogy. In verses 18 through 25, he he gives an account of Jesus' actual birth. And he gives a, in verse 18, he gives a brief and simple synopsis of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Matthew 18, he writes, Now the birth of Christ was as followed. follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, by the Holy Spirit, the phrase by the Holy Spirit is the most significant phrase in this text. Mary's child, we saw over the last few weeks, was by the Holy Spirit. Now, naturally, Joseph was troubled knowing that this baby inside Mary's womb was not his. So he decided to send her away secretly. But when he had made that decision, an angel appeared to him in a dream. And this angel told him the truth about the child and told him not to fear uh, to take Mary as his wife. He's also, this angel also proclaimed that this child should be called or would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Therefore, Joseph believed the angel and chose to take Mary as his wife and legally, and it's important to understand this, and legally adopt Jesus as his own child. Thus, Matthew proclaims, not only does Jesus have the legal right to the throne of David through Joseph, He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is fully God and fully man. He is the true and heavenly king. He came ultimately to save his people from their sins and to redeem this world unto himself. Now this brings us to Matthew chapter 2. Beginning today, Matthew gives a report of some strange visitors. Some strange visitors who arrive in Jerusalem to verify that Jesus is in fact the true king. In this unique account, we see Gentile magi who traveled from the east. Now Matthew, in giving this account, he shows us or he gives us three typical responses to King Jesus. Now the question as we go through these responses, the question is, are you responding like first the unwelcome and worshipful magi, or second, the unhappy and wicked King Herod, or third, the unworthy and worthless Pharisees and scribes. So just to do a little housekeeping before we start, 
We're only going to look at the first one this morning. So I'm trying to be a little bit shorter just so that I, we can stay on point. But I, I hope that, I, I trust that God will use this this morning as we continue through this study. So with that, let's study the first typical response. And I want you to ask the question, are you responding like the unwelcome and worshipful magi? Now, before we study that text, I need to make a few introductory comments. And by introductory, I mean it's probably going to be most of the sermon. But that's, but that's okay. Because <clears throat> we have all the time in the world, right? We, right, we, until the Lord comes. Every year at Christmas, we hear the story of the three wise men who came to give gifts to baby Jesus. Now, that story seems innocent enough. These wise men, these three wise men, are portrayed as coming to bow down in worship to little King Jesus. Now, you may have even seen an image of these three humble men coming from afar on their camels as they approach the manger with a star in the background. I mean, it's a, it's a popular picture. You usually see the sky, you see the star, you see the silhouette of the three camels, and you see in the foreground, you see the, the, the stable, and you see Mary and Joseph there. Now, as cute as, as this story may seem as presented, I can assure you, assure you there is much, 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 much more to the story. In this account, King Jesus stands as the absolute focal point of an account that includes an army of kingmakers from the east who were fixed on identifying the true king and worshiping him. There's also in this story a murder, murderously insane, wicked tyrant who was determined to do anything possible to stay in power. And lastly, there is a weak, self-centered, and self-righteous Jewish leadership that were bent on keeping the status quo because they had their little comfortable lives. Now, as we begin, I need to prepare you, and we need to give a bunch of background today. Now, if you enjoy history, this is going to be for you. We need to learn history and background to interpret this account. Now, if I just wanted to preach it as it's preached, I mean, you know, three wise men coming, and if I wanted to preach it as, as we see it in the world, especially around Christmas, that would be pretty easy to do. But this is going to take some, we're going to have to dive deep in order to understand what's going on here, what's truly going on. Now, as you give yourself to this study, I hope that you will give yourself to the study. I pray that you will see God's sovereign hand on every minute detail. Now, let's look closely at Matthew 2, 1. And as we do, we will need to answer a series of questions to better understand the background and the history to this account. Matthew writes, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So let's talk a moment about the setting. So what was the setting? First, <clears throat> this account occurred sometime after Jesus' birth. Now, we can surmise that some time had passed from the time of his birth. Most likely, Jesus was a few months old at this time. But he could have been up to two years old when we cross-reference Matthew 2.16. That verse tells us that Herod murdered all the male children from two years old and under in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. So, so he had reason to believe that, that Jesus would have been at least, or up to, could have been up to two years old. Now, most likely he was just saying, hey, I want to make sure I get him. 
So it, could, it, 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 it doesn't mean that he was to, it just means that Herod was a very wicked man and he wanted to make sure, he, he was going to stop at no cost, nothing to, to make sure that he got rid of Jesus. Now, it stands to reason then, though, that, that Jesus was not an infant at this time, but still very young. So, now, this account occurred in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew tells us that Jesus was actually born there. Now, this is significant for a couple of different reasons. Bethlehem was a small town five or six miles south of Jerusalem. It still exists. It's still there. Uh, it's located just a few miles south of Jerusalem. And in today's world, it's, I mean, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump. And their world, obviously, a five-mile walk or, or travel would have been more, but it was still very close to Jerusalem. It was located, or and it's still located, in the fertile hill country of Judea and situated along the main ancient highway from Jerusalem to Egypt. Now that becomes significant as we continue in the story. It was once called Ephrath, Ephrath that is, or Ephrathra. I always have trouble um, pronouncing things. Uh, the Old Testament refers to Bethlehem by that name in a few different locations. Now, this little town or hamlet came to be known as Bethlehem after the conquest under Joshua. Uh, the name actually means house of bread. Now, despite its small size, Bethlehem enjoyed a rich biblical history. Jacob buried Rachel there in uh, Genesis 35:19. Ruth and Boaz met there and were married, according to Ruth 1.22 and 2.4. David grew up there and tended sheep around its surrounding hills, according to 1 Samuel 17. And by the time, though, that Jesus's birth, of Jesus' birth, it had been long called the city of David because that was David's birth, or where, he was, or where he was brought up. We see that in Luke 2.4 and 2.11. Now in Micah 5.2... The prophet Micah promised that the Messiah would come from this insignificant little place. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem of Athra, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. As we continue Matthew's account, we'll see that it is prophetically significant that Matthew identified Jesus' birthplace as Bethlehem. Then later, I said that there's a couple of reasons why it's significant, Beth Bethlehem. Later, as we continue our study, we're going to see how this location plays a part in one of the responses to the arrival of King Jesus, specifically specifically the Pharisees and uh, the, the leaders of Israel and the fact that the geographically it was very close. But we'll see that as we move on. So who were the Magi? Now this is a, this is a longer question. Look back at your text in Matthew 2.1. Matthew tells us, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now as I stated earlier, uh, the, the, the identity of the Magi is shrouded by myth and tradition. I mean, we see it in the church. We see it throughout the church age, how this has happened. During the Dark Ages, a legend was propagated that they were kings, that there were three of them. We've already said that. And they even have names for them. Casper, um, Balthazar, and Melchior. Some even thought they represented Noah's three sons. Therefore, one of them 
if you see them in the portrayals, one of them is sometimes portrayed as an Ethiopian. Truly, we don't know much about them except for what Matthew says in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. He doesn't give us the number of them. He doesn't give us what animal they rode. We see them in many times portrayed riding camels. Uh, he doesn't give us their names. And, and he doesn't even actually say where they're from, except that they're, they're from the east. They were probably known to Matthew's audience as a priestly political class of Parthians who lived to the east of Israel. Uh, that's what they probably are. The English words magic and magician are derived from their name. Now, fire was a principal element of their worship. They claimed that a perpetual flame descended from heaven and burned on their primary altar. Now, the Magi first appear in history in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the Midian nation in eastern Mesopotamia. Many, many historians consider them to be Semites. Uh, this would make them, along with the Jews and Arabs, descendants of Noah's son Shem. Now, they may have also, it's possible that they came from, uh, or some of them may have come from Ur in the Chaldea, like Abraham. Now, the name Magi soon came to be associated solely with the hereditary priesthood within their tribe. Over the centuries, the Magi became skilled in astronomy and in astrology. They even developed a sacrificial system that bore a resemblance to Israel's. Like Israel, the, the Magi were actually monotheistic. They believed in the existence of one God. As time went on, they began to practice Zoroastrianism. This religion was based on the teaching of a Persian named Zoroaster. He believed in the god Ahura Mazda. He also taught that there is a cosmic struggle between uh, good and evil. Now, Persia adopted this religion under Darius the Great, and the Magi became very influential within the Medo-Persian and the Babylonian empires. They possessed great knowledge of history and the occult, but they were also accomplished in mathematics and agriculture and science. Therefore, they rose in power and influence within the political structure of that day. They were involved in various occult practices, including sorcery, and were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. Some believe that the, the Medo-Persians Medo founded their laws uh, or their law on the teaching of the Magi. You can find that in Daniel 6.8. You can find reference to that. Uh, <clears throat> scripture... Um, well, indeed, no Persian became their king without mastering the disciplines of their religion. They would crown the king, this is significant, they would crown the king only after he had demonstrated full knowledge and mastery of their uh, disciplines. Now, Scripture gives us some historical insight into this mysterious group. They were major players in Babylon before and during the captivity. According to Jeremiah 39.3, the chief of the Babylonian Magi was with Nebuchadnezzar when he attacked and conquered Judah. Daniel tells us that the, the Magi were some of the highest ranking officials in Babylon. In Daniel 2, God gave a dream to the king of Babylon and none of his court were able to give him the interpretation. And the Lord sovereignly gave Daniel the interpretation of the king's dream that he had made or the dream he'd made known to the king. 
which he made, I'm sorry, he made the, Daniel made the interpretation of the dream known to the king. Therefore, in God's providence, he promoted Daniel and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men in, of Babylon. So basically, he was over all, Daniel was over all these people. Daniel 2.24 tells us that Daniel pled for the wise men that they would not be destroyed by the king when they could not give the, the interpretation to him. So he was able to prevent this from happening, this, this destruction of the, the wise men. And so this, along with Daniel's wisdom that he demonstrated, caused the wise men, it's pretty clear, caused the wise men to highly regard him. In Daniel 6, 4-9, the commissioners and the satraps hatched a plot against Daniel that caused him to be thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel makes no mention of the wise men being involved in their treachery. He only mentions the, he only mentions the uh, commissioners and the, the, the satraps, but he doesn't mention the, these uh, magi or the, or the wise men. So as, as far as we can see, these men were actually, they had a respect for Daniel and were close to Daniel. According to uh, Daniel 5.11, Nebuchadnezzar, even De I, I think we said this earlier, appointed uh, Daniel chief of the magi magicians. Now, during their time with Daniel, we have to think, put our thinking caps on a little bit. During their time with Daniel, they probably learned about the one true God. And they probably learned about the Old Testament scriptures, correct? I mean, if you think about it. So they had this respect for, they had this respect for Daniel, and therefore they probably learned about the one true God, and for, they probably learned about the Old Testament. Truly, you should be able to see God's sovereign hand in all of this. I think that's what we need to really focus on. He placed faithful Jews in contact, including Daniel, with the Magi. They learned about the one true God, and they, get, they gained an understanding about the coming Messiah. They had an informed understanding of the Messiah, which undoubtedly showed that they had exposure to the Old Testament Scripture. Through the centuries after the exile, many Jews remained in Babylon and intermarried with the people of the East. Therefore, there must have been a strong Jewish messianic hope and influence that continued there even up to Jesus' birth. Now, during that time, between Daniel and Jesus' birth, as we know, the Greek and Roman empires rose up. Even still, the Magi's influence continued in the East, particularly, particularly in Parthia. Now, that's important for us to understand, and we'll see that in a moment. Now, as we progress, what we're going to find out is that the Romans joined Herod to drive the Parthians out of Judah when he came to power. And Herod is a main player in this story. Now, I want to give you one other interesting tidbit. Turn to Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, as you're turning there, there's a probable connection from the prophecies of Balaam to the Magi. Balaam was a wicked seer whom Balak, the king of the king hired, the king of Moab, hired to curse Israel. Instead, Balaam was bound by God to bless the nation. Now, in Numbers 23 and 24, Balaam gives a series of prophecies concerning Israel. 
In Numbers 24, 17, there is a probable connection to Matthew 2, 2. Siri's telling me to check it out. Now just listen to this in Matthew 2, 2. He says, in Matthew 2, 2, they, the Magi say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now look at Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now, there, there is a, what I would say is an unmistakable connection here. Balaam prophesied of a star that would come forth from Jacob. The Magi came to Jerusalem seeking a star. So let me give you a couple more connections in the text. Notice what Balaam says. He says, a scepter shall rise from Israel. This points back to Genesis 49.10 where Jacob prophesied, and you can go look it up, Jacob prophesied that in the days to come, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. So this is a messianic prophecy here. And that messianic prophecy says that, there would, that the scepter, which is a, it's a symbol of kingly authority, would not depart from Judah. So basically what's happening here is that Shiloh, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, would, would rule from Judah. Now clearly, Jacob in Genesis 49, who's making this, this, this prophecy, and Balaam, are prophesying of a divine king who would arise in Judah. Now look again. Balaam says, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. Now this clearly connects back to Genesis 3.15 where God proclaims that the woman's seed would crush, would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, the, the, the idea of bruising on the head is crushing the head, which is the idea that we see in, num, in Numbers 24 under, with Balaam. So, so we see these connections, these, these direct connections in the text. Now let's make some real-world connections considering what we learned about Daniel and the Magi. As we saw, Daniel showed up among the Magi during the Babylonian exile. He introduced them to the Jewish writings, including the Pentateuch, which contained numbers. It is very possible that Balaam was a prominent historical figure among them. In any case, the Magi arrived in Jerusalem with a clear biblical understanding of the Messiah. They had an expectation. They had a messianic expectation. Now, undoubtedly, what I think we're seeing here in terms of the connection is, is that they had been watching and waiting over the centuries from the time of Daniel for the Messiah. Now, we know from history that much changed during those six centuries, including the rise of the Parthian Empire from which the Magi had come. According to Matthew, in Matthew 2, they came to worship this expected divine king. They came to they expected the Redeemer, the Messiah. He would be the seed of the woman who, whom God declared in Genesis 3.15 would crush the head of the serpent. 
His star would arise in Judah. He would be the divine king they had expected for six centuries. Now the question then becomes, what was this star that they saw? So before we move forward, I do want to briefly address the star. Now Matthew doesn't give us much information about, what they, about how they knew Jesus had been born. Magi only state that they had seen his star in the east and had come to worship him. Now some, that's Matthew 2 too. So some have suggested that this star was some sort of astrological phenomena such as a supernova or a conjunction of planets. Now, now, but I would argue that this star was like God's Shekinah glory which guided or that guided the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. We see that in Exodus 13, 21. It says the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of cloud by night to give them light that they may travel by day or by night. But throughout the Old Testament, we see accounts of God's glory being manifested as light. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, uh, the eyes of Israel, to the eyes of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. At another time, after Moses had inscribed the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, his face still glowed with the light of God's glory when he returned to the people. Uh, now, there are some, actually some similar occurrences in the New Testament in Matthew, with, with our Lord Jesus. In Matthew 17, 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. In Acts 9.3, Saul was traveling to Damascus, and as he was traveling, according to Acts 9.3, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And we know that he was so bright that it even caused him not to be able to see. And the, it, had the, it had to fall off, the, the scales had to fall off in order for him to see. That light was so strong. In Revelation 1.16, John fell down as a dead man when he saw Jesus' face shining like the sun in its strength. In Revelation 21.23, John described the New Jerusalem as a city that has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the, the Lamb. Now, both the Hebrew and Greek words for star were also used figuratively to represent any great brilliance or radiance. So it doesn't have to be an actual star is the point. As we, as we saw in Numbers 24, the Messiah is spoken of as the star that shall come forth from Jacob. In Revelation 22-16, uh, Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. So, with all that put together, I would argue that the Magi saw the glory of God blazing as an extremely bright star or light. And this light must have been made visible to those who were looking for it. And we know that the Magi from, all, from those past six centuries since their contact with Daniel, uh, they had been looking for this light. John MacArthur says, The Shekinah glory of God stood over Bethlehem just as centuries before it had stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness. And just as the pillar of cloud gave light to Israel but darkness to Egypt, 
Only the eyes of the Magi were open to see God's great light over Bethlehem. End quote. In the amazing providence of God, these mysterious travelers came from the east to Jerusalem, and they were intent on doing one thing. They wanted to find the king and worship him. And the question then becomes, why did they worship him? Why did they want to worship him? Well, the word translated worship has the idea of falling down and prostrating oneself before the one honored. Their desire to worship him, I would argue, proves that they were true seekers. They were true seekers of the one true king. They had been looking for him for centuries, and when they saw his unmistakable sign, what is described as the star or the light, they didn't hesitate to come. And here's what's amazing, and I think of, well, here's what's amazing. Despite their pagan and superstitious background and culture, they obeyed God just like Abraham did when Abraham was called out of the era of Chaldeans. When God's glory shined for them to see, they immediately recognized it and were drawn to it to worship Jesus, the source of the light. Beloved, God always saves those who truly seek to know Him. I believe that there were those among these pagan magi who truly sought to know God and wanted to truly worship King Jesus. This reminds me of Jeremiah 29, 13. It says, You will seek me and find me when you search me for me with all their heart. You see, the magi, I believe, were searching for Him with all their heart. They were searching for Him so that they might worship Him. They were seeking Him. The question becomes, are you seeking the Lord like the Magi did? Are you seeking to know Him? If you're truly seeking after Him, you will find Him. That's the promise of Jeremiah 29. I was talking to a young man just this week. He told me that he wants to know the truth. Let me tell you, this is, this is uh, you can trust this. If he is, or if any of you are truly seeking after the Lord with all your hearts, he will, the Lord will find, will, he will be found. Just as these mysterious magi found him over 2,000 years ago. I mean, think how improbable the story is. Think how improbable all these connections are in the text. And yet, that's what we see. I want you to look down at Matthew 2, 9-12. Now, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, that's what I want you to hear, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced, with exceeding, ex- they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Beloved, any time someone truly seeks after the Lord, they will rejoice exceedingly with great joy at finding Him. When God places the desire on your heart, I just want to make sure we, we say it in the proper way, biblically. When God places that desire on your heart, you will stop at nothing. You will stop at nothing to find Him. 
until you found him. And when you do, you will rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Look back at your text in verses 11 and 12. After, and after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to, to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed by their own country, or to their own country, or for their own country by another way. Now, you may be asking why the Magi were un- unwelcome. Yes, they're, they're unwelcome and unworshipful. Why were they unwelcome in Jerusalem? Well, next time we're going to see the other responses to the arrival of the king, including this wicked, wicked tyrant. And we're going to see why they are unwelcomed by him, but we're also going to see why they're unwelcomed by by the Jewish leadership. As we turn the corner, beloved, I ask you, have you responded to King Jesus like the unwelcome and worshipful magi? They were from a pagan land and pagan culture they had every reason to ignore and reject the the jewish messiah yet according to matthew they were his true seekers you know i'm reminded of the account of the woman at the well in john 4 you see she was also unwelcome yet worship worshipful you see she was a, a samaritan And and Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they had intermarried with the pagans of the land. Uh, They wouldn't even associate with them. They they saw them as so bad, they wouldn't even step foot on Samaritan soil. The woman at the well was not only a, a Samaritan, she was a woman. Not only was she a woman, she was a woman who had been with five different husbands. And the one that she was living with at the time was not her husband. Five different men. You see, if there was an unwelcome outcast, it was her. Yet, Jesus, according to John 4, Jesus offered her living water. Just listen to his words in John 4, 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. That's, he's speaking of the water of the well that they were at. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Friend, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you are from. It doesn't even matter what you have done. Jesus is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's words in John 4, 23 and 24. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. This morning, I, I pray, whatever, wherever you're at, whatever your situation is spiritually, I pray that you will genuinely seek Him just like the Magi. And in the words of the Lord, according to the prophet Jeremiah, 
Here's the promise. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Seeker, this is a promise you can count on. But let me give you a word of warning. A.W. Tozer, in the words of A.W. Tozer, when religion has said its last word, there is little that we need, uh, need other than God himself. The habit of seeking God and, seeking God and, effectively pre- prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the end, the and lies our, in the end lies our great woe. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God, and in Him we shall find that we have that which we have been seeking all our lives, end quote. You see, in the words of John, the Father is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth. Those who are simply seeking after Him. Those who humbly come to Him. Who humbly come before His throne. The Magi came seeking to worship Him. As we close this morning, the question is, what are you seeking? Are you seeking Him in all humility? Have you come to realize that you bring nothing to salvation but your sin? Have you come to realize that by grace through faith, you're saved by grace through faith. And by the way, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no man may boast. I pray this morning, whether you're a believer who has come to Christ or whether you sit here today condemned, I pray that you would be a humble seeker. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. You're so good to us. Father, may we worship you this morning and the rest of our lives, with our whole lives, may we worship in spirit and truth. Father, we see throughout history, we see this in Matthew 2, we see that you have worked every minute detail. And you brought about the birth of your Son, who became fully man, Holy God, who dwelt among us to save His people from their sins. Father, we're so thankful that we are Your people. Lord, may we dwell before You in holiness. May we worship You in spirit and truth, even this morning in Christ's name. Amen.